welcome. You're listening to Latin Waves with your hosts, Sylvia and Stuart Richardson. Latin Waves is more than just hot rhythms. This is a show about community, about creating a culture that is inclusive and based on fairness. Because everyone deserves dignity, respect, and has something to contribute. A new world is possible, and it all starts with us. I am delighted to be joined by Dr. Robert Jensen. He is a prolific author. His latest book, An Inconvenient Apocalypse, is coming out this September. Is co-author with Wes Jackson. Thank you so much for being with us today. Well, Sylvia, it's always great to be on your show. And just a, a quick note, prolific in this case just means old. I've been around so long. Mm. You know, yeah, I just <laughs> kept going. So that's all that means. And to me, prolific means you you have a way of making the complicated accessible without making it simplistic. And that's what well, I love about you. I'm grateful to hear that. There's two reasons for that. One is that I'm not smart enough to make anything too complicated. And the second is I spent, you know, 26 years um, at the University of Texas teaching undergraduates. And I'm really grateful for that because it forces one, if you want to be an effective teacher, to uh, avoid simplicity or the simplistic, but yet make things understandable. And that's more necessary than ever because we look around us, of course, there's simplistic assertions about everything, who's good, who's bad, who's responsible. And it's never simplistic, but yet we do need a framework for understanding so we can make decisions. So this is really, in a sense, this is what it means to be a citizen in a complex world, to try and be able to hold on to frameworks and clear moral assertions, yet recognize the complexity of that world. Uh, But the other crisis that we have is um, this colonial crisis that continues today in the form of conquering wars and... I, here, I think it's one place where I would like us to perhaps focus our discussion today because, you know, people look at colonization and they think, well, it's natural, you know, it's happened, it's always happened, it's been like that, right? And if you look at history books, you learn that, you know, after World War One, the French, you know, economists showed that uh, there was approximately 600 million people, about two-fifths of the Earth's population, were under colonial rule, right? So everybody thinks it's, you know, it's natural. The colonial process is just... And I wonder if what becomes normalized, what becomes constantly prescribed as the natural becomes so invisible to us that we stop looking... And so how should we context the world that we live in today where we have had not just World War One, but two world wars and we've had a Cold War and where we now have a precipitation to conflict that mm-hmm. seems to be right. threatening the world? Yeah. Well, in some sense, the claim that you know, empires and colonialism and aggression and one group of people struggling to acquire the resources and territory and labor of another. In one sense, the claim that that's natural is absolutely right. It is natural. It is, in fact, part of human nature to pursue policies like that. We have the capacity to do that, uh, which is just a way of saying anything people do is part of human nature. You know, that's kind of circular, but true. But the, the corrective to that is a deeper history. So 
has that been the only way human beings have organized themselves? Well, no. Um, all of this empire building and aggression and territorial expansion, that's really only a product of about the last five, six, seven thousand years of human history is connected to the rise of agriculture and the formation of states. Uh, it's a long and complex history, but prior to that, um, you didn't see that because it wasn't part of the human experience. So uh, it is true that we have to deal with human nature, and part of human nature is the, the acquisition of resources at the expense of others. We certainly have the capacity to do that. But the question is now, how are we stuck with that? And I think there's a whole lot of people in the world who are arguing and working very hard to try and make sure we aren't stuck with that. And people have different approaches to that. There's the kind of American approach. There's the, a more internationalist left approach. And the question is, which is the better approach to try and resolve these conflicts and get to a world that, especially with the presence of nuclear weapons, isn't you know always on the verge of self-destruction? A friend of mine... Um send me an email about the idea of modernity and how um, in many ways the idea of modernity has been a concept that immediately associates capitalism you know and rapid expansion and you know conquering perhaps as mm -hmm. part of this modernity and so I asked well is there a socialized or social modernity, you know, that perhaps looks at the well-being of other people at the, as the betterment of people. Uh, and how do we reconcile our ideas of easy labels that demonize one group over another and then, yeah. you know, puts us into this very cast of us versus them? Yeah. So, you know, modernity and the, the Enlightenment period and the scientific revolution and all of those things that uh, created the world in which we live, like any other set of historical processes, there are good and bad aspects to them. Um, the scientific revolution produced new ways of understanding the, the physical world that are pretty, pretty extraordinary, and most of us wouldn't want to give those up. On the other hand, the scientific revolution also made it possible for humans to dramatically accelerate the assault on ecosystems and now leave us, you know, on the edge of uh, something we could call collapse. Okay, so, you know, good and bad. That's the reality of the human experience. Uh, so modernity is um, got all sorts of negatives that have led us to this place, and it's also got positives that give us a chance to get out of it. So, you know, uh, rationality, to take the, the modern faith that rational thought can solve all problems. Well, we know that's not very <laughs> likely, that humans are much more complex than merely calculating machines. Uh, we have other forces that drive us. And so we try to use the capacity we have for rationality, using the methods of science, to try and overcome, you know, our more self-destructive instincts. Uh, all of this is just you know, the mess of being human. Uh, and who's responsible for all the problems? Well, you know, you can point to individual leaders or people in the, in the moment who are formulating policy and executing policy that's dangerous, that's destructive, that's murderous, right? and you can hold them accountable. But we also want to see these longer processes and how they're not the product of anybody's bad choices, 
their the way history worked out. And so I agree, you know, there are there are people who deserve to be held accountable. But if demonizing people means trying to suggest that there's a unique evil in these people and if we could only get rid of these people then everything would be fine. Well, that's not going to help very much. And so we have to balance those two things, a kind of fierce commitment to moral principles and a recognition of the complexity of history and how we've got to do more than just get rid of the bad people. If all we had to do was get rid of the bad people, well, that would be hard because bad people generally (laughs) have a lot of power. Um, But it would be relatively easy. And of course, our, our struggle is much more difficult. When I look at the world today, you know, I I see a, a war happening in Ukraine, and I see how people immediately get into camps, right? Who's to blame? Right. You know, on one hand, I hear people talking about how this war didn't start now. It started in 2014 with the coup in Ukraine you know, that took down their precedent, where many accused the U.S. and other European countries of being involved in that. Now, from a Latin American perspective, that seems like a really plausible theory because we've seen the U.S. invade and have many military incursions in Latin America. Um, The other part of that equation is that this is also caused by an EU... Um, trying to incorporate Ukraine into the EU monetary, you know, mainly the capitalist version, right, of Western capitalism. Um, And so that also has a kernel of truth in it, right? So how should we look at this conflict? Yeah. Again, we're talking about this complexity. And in this case, the the real question is, when does the relevant history begin? Mm-hmm. Right. So if the relevant history begins a week ago, then uh, Vladimir Putin and the Russian invasion of the Ukraine are very easy to analyze, condemn, and react to. But as you point out, you have to go back further, not only to 2014, when the Ukrainian people rejected uh, by going out into the streets with nonviolent protests, the things we all you know, tend to support, rejected uh, a president who was, to a large degree, a client of Russia. But you have to go back further to 1989, the fall of the Berlin Wall, the beginning of the disintegration of the Soviet Union, which finally left the world stage in 1991, and the role of NATO. So I don't have any problem condemning Vladimir Putin's invasion. I don't have any problem with the the rest of the world marshalling right now mostly economic sanctions to help pressure Russia out, because... I side with the Ukrainian people who are the subject of an illegal and immoral invasion. But for people in the United States to stop there would be unfortunate because NATO expansion in the post-Soviet era does play a role in this. It doesn't excuse the violence and lawlessness of Putin's Russia, but it helps us understand it. So NATO itself is worth thinking about. So I always go back to a quip that uh, an official made early in the history of NATO. What was the purpose of NATO after World War II? Well, the quip was that NATO exists to keep the U.S. in, to keep Russia out, and to keep the Germans down. Mm -hmm. In other words, the NATO alliance of the United States and the Western European powers was to keep Europe securely in the U.S. camp, 
to keep them out of a Soviet or more socialist camp, and to deal with the problem of German militarism, which throughout a couple of centuries was a big problem. Okay, well, at the end of the Soviet Union, uh, the stated reason for NATO, which was self-protection against potential Soviet aggression, it evaporated. So what was NATO for? Well, you could make an argument at that point NATO should have been dissolved. Or if it wasn't dissolved, it should have been expanded to a European continent-wide security arrangement. Well, that's not what happened. And the other part of it is economic. The United States wanted to, as we call it, liberalize the Russian economy, which means open it up to investment. And as a result of the choices that the U.S. and, and much of Europe made, we got a Russian economy that was liberalized in a way that really didn't benefit the Russian people. It's the rise of what we now call the oligarchs, the people who, you know, uh, got their hands on a substantial part of the Russian economic uh, machine and enriched themselves and made it possible for Vladimir Putin to create the kind of autocratic state he has. Now, that doesn't mean Putin and his cronies aren't responsible, but it means if we want to be serious about trying to solve the problem, we have to understand the origins of the problem. So, both, you know, there's a lot of things where I say both things are true. We should reject Putin's invasion of the Ukraine. We should side with the Ukrainian people who are resisting. And we should also ask questions, critical questions, about U.S. foreign policy and economic policy in the post-Soviet era. Uh, if we do that, then I think we come to better policy options. One of the ways that you help me to not only engage critically is by honoring you know the ways where we get stuck you know fundamentalist ways of thinking right and in one of your books you talk about the four fundamentalisms and one of them was this economic of market fundamentalism you know and when yeah. we hear about liberating or opening markets for investment it sounds good it sounds like it's a positive thing how would you describe, perhaps just briefly, this way of yeah. uh, attaching to fundamentalism and attaching and, and foregoing right, critical thinking uh -huh. of how it affects us? Right. So, uh, of course, there's a longstanding critique of capitalism that's been around pretty much as long as capitalism has been around. And one aspect of that is to point out that there's a kind of capitalist dogma that says in its most crude form that markets are in a sense perfect. Whatever people want, uh, markets will provide at the price that's appropriate. And you know, if you if you believe that, as many you know right wing economists and right wing politicians do believe, well then any government intervention into markets beyond the most basic, you know, like providing currency and laws about banking and things like that, any any intervention by the, the government into the markets is bad because the markets are perfect. Well, the problem is markets aren't perfect, and every economist, even right-wing economists, know that markets are flawed. Let's just take, not to get too uh, nerdy about it, but there's a concept in economics called externalities, and externalities are costs borne by somebody that aren't reflected in the price of a good or service. So pollution is an externality. If I sell you my car, Sylvia, well, uh, we don't figure into the sale of that car the effects of the pollution that that car spews out. That pollution, the costs of that are borne by other people. Well, 
externalities are the most basic way in which markets are extremely flawed. Uh, yet there's a kind of right-wing dogma, what many people call a market fundamentalism, right, that ignores what we all know. Well, if you ignore reality, generally you don't get very good policy, and we can see the consequences of that. Uh, the most dramatic in recent years was the largely uh, deregulated nature of the financial system, which produced the, the housing bubble and the crash of 2007-2008. That was a profound market failure. Now, did we learn from that as a society and reimpose not only old regulations, but even more severe regulations to avoid that? Well, no, we didn't. All right. So the fundamentalism then really it, it overwhelms people's ability to be even, you know, minimally rational. So that was a long answer, I know, but there are many, of course, religious fundamentalism. There is what I call national fundamentalism, a kind of hyper-patriotism, economic fundamentalism. Those are all forces that lead people to endorse bad policies, in fact, policies they know are bad, but a kind of fundamentalism overwhelms our own capacity to evaluate. And, you know, that's never a good result for anybody, mm -hmm. especially people who are most vulnerable, people on the bottom of the economic ladder, people who are already in groups because of race or ethnicity, let's say, who are marginal. Um, this fundamentalism is its a part of human thinking. It's not just the bad people who do it. We're all susceptible to fundamentalist thinking, but... We have to be a lot more uh, diligent, I think, in the way we police ourselves about it. Mm. The idea that capitalism was a normal, natural process from feudalism into a new way of uh, organizing economic, our, our economies or our social interactions, really, because that's what an economy is to me, just stuck and we just stay there. And, you know, we haven't questioned, you know, well, how did it come about? Was it really so natural? You know, and we ignore all the violence, all the displacement of women, all the genocides of indigenous people, you know, and if we can put that aside, yes, capitalism was <laughs> natural. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so how, how is capital um, not only um, at the center of conflict, but also yeah. how is the concept of empire married with this idea of capitalism in right. the 21st century? Right. Let's go back to, and you made a very important point that um, what seems, you know, to be all around us taken for granted is often presented as if it's natural, as if it was inevitable, as if there's no human choice involved. And of course, what we know about capitalism is that, in fact, it's distinctly not natural. In, in a sense, it goes against hundreds of thousands of years of human nature. So capitalism, you know, its, it's claim, its moral claim is, listen, everybody's better off if everybody pursues their own self-interest, okay, and that that's natural. So the capitalist claim is that um, that's just the way people are. And as we said earlier, you know, that is part of being human. We all are capable of being greedy and self-interested. But for most of human history, it was cooperation and collaboration that was natural, that was normal. You go back to our pre-agricultural history, and small band-level societies uh, survived because of collaboration and cooperation. Nobody saw themselves as advancing their own self-interest. So capitalism has a story to tell that makes a certain amount of sense if you don't think too much 
about actual human history. Uh, so that's an important corrective on whatever anybody tells you is natural or inevitable, and I, degree, I agree completely. Now, of course, the history of capitalism and imperialism go together. They're not separate processes. Europe became the wealthiest you know, part of the world, not because it was so industrious and invented things on its own and generated that wealth. Of course, it went out and secured that wealth through violence all over the world. And so the rise of capitalism, which, you know, economists and historians will debate, when did capitalism really start? But let's say, you know, the mid-1700s, this system is starting to coalesce in, in, in Europe and in other places. Well, all of the, the accumulation of material resources that made that capitalism possible was a product of European conquest, um, most notably in the Americas, but Africa and Asia as well. All right, so you can't separate the history of capitalism from the history of imperial brutality. There's just no way to do it. Uh, just like you can't separate racism from the history of capitalism, that these systems evolve together and are self-reinforcing, self-justifying. Uh, and that self-justifying part is, is really important because, you know, most of the people who do really nasty things to other people to... Um, increase their own wealth. They know at some level what they're doing is morally unacceptable. And that's why you get these bizarre justifications like capitalism is natural or white people are naturally superior, which is why Europeans had a right to, to dominate the Americas, let's say. Uh, all of those are justifications for something that people deep in their hearts know is morally unjustifiable. Uh, and that's capitalism, that's imperialism, that's white supremacy, and most profoundly probably is patriarchy, uh, which is the system where you see that natural argument pressed most aggressively, right? that, that men are naturally stronger than women, and therefore there is no other way to organize human societies except male dominance. Well, again, the problem is that if you go back just a few thousand years in human history, there was no patriarchy, no organized system of institutionalized male dominance. So, you know, what we're talking about in a very short amount of time is how much ideological obfuscation a person has to cut through to just see human history with some sort of clarity. Uh, and unfortunately, at least in the U.S. where I was born and raised, the education system often doesn't help us do that. In fact, the education um, that I received for much of my childhood did exactly the opposite. It tried to get me to believe these rationalizations. So we're we're up against a lot. And we haven't even started talking about <laughs> contemporary political power and the media and all the rest. Yeah. So for, and we haven't even gotten to Instagram yet because we all know that the core of the problem today is Instagram. Mm. I'm joking. That's <laughs> one of the many crazy aspects of the world we live in. Uh, now that you brought me there, I one of the things that I constantly feel compassion for myself and for others is the way that we are socialized right because to me culture yeah. is not something that's fixed culture is something that we're constantly co-creating through our actions through our participations uh -huh. through our decisions to say yes or no and 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 it's filled with uh unspoken rules 
right that are uh-huh. right beneath <laughs> you know are the water if you would it's like the little the iceberg right you see at the top you see culture as a, the language the dances the food uh, but right beneath it you know is all this unspoken rules like what's courtesy was our theory of time our uh-huh. temple of productivity work all of those things are beneath it right our idea so uh, who belongs who's an outsider how do you see the media's role in not only shaping our pro-empire you know acceptance uh-huh. or or adjustment to empire and uh-huh. how do we break free that's a good question. And again, it's complicated. So, uh, you know, I came out of mainstream journalism. I was a newspaper reporter and editor for about a decade at a very low level, not at any prestigious uh, media outlets. Uh, but it did give me an insight into how journalists work. And then I you know, went back to study journalism and eventually teach journalism. The critique of contemporary media that comes from the left is very compelling, that they reflect a uh, a perspective, and it's the perspective of the dominant power in the culture, which is corporate power for the most part. And that's true. They also reflect a kind of, in, in my country, in the United States, a kind of uh, hyper-patriotic, pro-U.S. approach to the world. And you see both of those things operating every day. At the same time, mainstream journalists, the working journalists, both the ones I've known in my life and the ones I've studied, uh, they're not out to deceive. They're not out to, you know, sort of cultivate lies, you know. Um, they're trying to do, out of a sense of duty and professional pride, they're trying to do their best job of reporting the facts. So where does that leave us? Well, I can tell you now that if I want to know what's happening in a part of the world, uh, the first stop I make is the New York Times, because the New York Times has the resources and the professionalism uh, that allows me to read dispatches from all over the world with some confidence that the basic facts being presented are probably accurate, not 100%, everybody errors, right? But I don't read those uncritically. I read that with an understanding that the New York Times represents collectively as an institution a certain point of view, a certain framework of how to understand the world. And so when I was reading, for instance, let's go back to the crucial run-up to the Iraq invasion of 2003, When I was reading American news coverage of that period, uh, I didn't dismiss it all as lies, but I read it very critically because, especially in the post-9-11 era, there was a kind of uh, almost psychotic hyper-patriotism at loose in the United States, and it affected media coverage. So both things are true. You can't trust the media to give you an unfiltered view of the world because there is no such thing as an unfiltered view of the world from anybody. Yet at the same time, professional media in the United States provide a lot of very reliable information. So we're back to this, you know, complexity of life and trying to make sense of it as a citizen who's trying to, you know, do one's job in a democracy by being informed and then trying to influence policy. Uh, The reporting on the Ukraine, I think, is an example of this. Uh, The U.S. news media is appropriately highlighting the Ukrainian resistance to an illegal and immoral Russian invasion. That's true. And that reporting is very useful as you're trying to understand what's happening there. But at the same time, much of that history we've already talked about, about post-World War II U.S. domination of the world scene and the aggressive nature of NATO, 
most of that is at best a kind of footnote, which leaves people unable to to see the big picture. And and so that's not to just plug your radio show, but that's why shows like this are so important because these kind of conversations can happen in a way they don't tend to happen in the mainstream. And so when people, you know, who have a limited information diet, who either don't have the time or the knowledge to go forward and collect a, a wider variety of views, when they adopt the line they see in the media, well, that's not surprising. Um, happens all the time. It's a form of social control when the media doesn't have that larger, more expansive, more historically grounded assessment of contemporary events. Thank you so much for that. Yeah. How can people access your book? Well, uh, if you just put my name, Robert Jensen, into a search engine, uh, you can find on my homepage uh, not only information about the books, but uh, articles that are available for free. Fabulous. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Latin Waves. Latin Waves is an independently produced syndicated radio program made available for free to campus and community radios and also to the world at latinwavesmedia.com. Please visit the website to hear previous shows, hear about upcoming events, and consider becoming a member for as little as $1 per month.